Chapter 3 of Stories of Symphonic Music. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wilkie Mills. Stories of Symphonic Music by Laurent Gilman. Section 3 Beethoven. Ludwig van Beethoven, born in Bonn, December 16, 1770, died in Vienna, March 26, 1827. Symphony Number no. 3, Heroica, Opus 55. 1. Allegro con brio. 2. Marcia funebre, adagio assai. 3. Scherzo. Allegro vivace, trio. 4. Finale, Allegro molto. On the score of the manuscript of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony in the Bibliotheque at Vienna appeared these words Sinfonia Grande, Napoleon Bonaparte, and thereby hang many tales. Anton Schindler. Footnote. Anton Schindler, the son of a cantor and schoolmaster, was born at Model, Moravia, in 1769. He was the intimate associate of Beethoven from 1819 until the latter's death, save for a brief period of estrangement occasioned by Beethoven's untranquil temper. He outlived Beethoven by more than half a century, and died near Frankfurt at the age of 95. End footnote. The close friend and biographer of Beethoven wrote at length in his famous life of the symphonist concerning the origin of the Eroica. In the autumn of 1802, says Schindler, Beethoven resumed a plan which he had formed of doing homage to Napoleon, the hero of the day, in a grand instrumental work, and set about its execution. Quote, but it was not till the following year that he applied himself in good earnest to that gigantic composition known by the title of Sinfonia Eroica, which, however, in consequence of various interruptions, was not finished till 1804. The original idea of that symphony is said to have been suggested by General Bernadotte, who was then French ambassador at Vienna and had a high esteem for our Beethoven. In his political sentiments, Beethoven was a Republican. The spirit of independence, natural to a genuine artist, gave him a decided bias that way. Plato's Republic was transfused into his flesh and blood, and upon the principles of that philosopher he reviewed all the constitutions in the world. He wished all institutions to be modeled upon the plan prescribed by Plato. He lived in the firm belief that Napoleon entertained no other design than to republicanize France upon similar principles, and thus, as he conceived, a beginning would be made for the general happiness of the world. Hence, his respect and enthusiasm for Napoleon. A fair copy of the musical work for the First Council of the French Republic, the conqueror of Marengo, with the dedication to him, 
was on the point of being dispatched through the French embassy to Paris, when the news arrived in Vienna that Napoleon Bonaparte had caused himself to be proclaimed Emperor of the French. The first thing Beethoven did on receiving this intelligence was to tear the title leaf off the symphony. On it were written the words, Napoleon Bonaparte and then fling the work itself with a torrent of execrations against the French emperor, against the new tyrant, upon the floor, from which he would not allow it to be lifted. Footnote. Such is the account, declares Schindler, in a footnote given by Count Moritz Lichnowsky, who, with Ferdinand Ries, witnessed the circumstance. End footnote. It was a long time before Beethoven recovered from the shock and permitted this work to be given to the world. I shall only add that it was not till the tragic end of the great emperor at St. Helena that Beethoven was reconciled with him and remarked that, seventeen years before, he had composed appropriate music to the catastrophe in which it was exactly predicted musically, but unwittingly, alluding to the dead march in the symphony. Quote. When the symphony was first performed in public under Beethoven's direction at the Theatre an der Wien, April 7, 1805, it was announced on the program as a new grand symphony in D-sharp by Herr Ludwig von Beethoven, dedicated to His Excellence Prince von Lebkowitz. In October of the following year, the symphony was published with this title and motto, Sinfonia Eroica, composta per festeggiare il souvenire di un gran uomo. Heroic symphony composed to celebrate the memory of a great man. Interpreters innumerable have attempted to read the meaning of this baffling symphony with its funeral march followed perplexingly by a gay scherzo and an energetic and jubilant finale. For Adolf Marx, 1799-1866, the dirge pictured a battlefield at night, covered with the silent bodies of the dead. The scherzo told of the rejoicings of the homeward-bound soldiers. In the finale was the consecration of victory by peace. Berlioz found the scherzo and finale akin to the rites celebrated by Homer's warriors over a dead hero. Still another elucidation in which the license of the interpreter is more than a little stretched found the first movement to convey a grand idea of Napoleon's determination of character. The second movement is descriptive of the funeral honors paid to one of his favorite generals the winding up of which represents the faltering steps of the last gazers into the grave, while the finale offers a combination of French revolutionary airs. But no one has viewed this symphony more sympathetically or more consistently than did Wagner in an article contributed to a series of papers on poetic contents of Beethoven's tonework's, published in the Neue Zeitschrift für Musik, in 1852. Quote, the designation heroic, he wrote, is to be taken in its widest sense, and in no wise to be conceived as relating merely to a military hero. If we broadly connote by hero, held, 
the whole the full-fledged man in whom are present all the purely human feelings of love of grief of force in their highest fill and strength then we shall rightly grasp the subject which the artist lets appeal to us in the speaking accents of his tone work the artistic space of this work is filled with all the varied intercrossing feelings of a strong, a consummate individuality to which nothing human is a stranger, but which includes within itself all truly human, and utters it in such a fashion that, after frankly manifesting every noble passion, it reaches a final rounding of its nature, wherein the most feeling softness is wedded with the most energetic force the heroic tendency of this artwork is the progress towards that rounding off for him the first movement quote, embraces as in a glowing furnace all the emotions of a richly gifted nature in the heyday of unresting youth yet all these feelings spring from one main faculty and that is force we see a titan wrestling with the gods in the second movement the funeral march this shattering force reaches the tragic crisis towards which it was rushing the tone poet clothes its proclamation in the musical apparel of a funeral march emotion tamed by deep grief moving in solemn sorrow tells us its tale in stirring tones Quote, force robbed of its destructive arrogance by the chastening of its deep sorrow the third movement shows in all its buoyant gaiety its wild unruliness has shaped itself to fresh to blithe activity we have before us now this lovable glad man who paces hale and hearty through the fields of nature the finale shows us the man entire that is to say as wagner somewhat ponderously explains a combination of the two sides hitherto shown the deeply stoutly suffering man and the gladly blithely doing man harmoniously at one with self in these emotions where the memory of sorrow becomes itself the shaping force of noble deeds the whole the total man now shouts to us the avowal of his godhood Close quote. overture to coriolanus opus sixty two this overture composed in eighteen o seven was published in the following year the original manuscript is inscribed overatura zum trauerspiel coriolan composta da l v beethoven the tragedy here indicated for which it was written is not the coriolanus of shakespeare but the coriolan of heinrich joseph von collin a contemporary of beethoven who filled the post of secretary at the austrian court in their main outlines the plays of collin and of shakespeare are alike with however this prime difference the coriolanus of shakespeare is slain while the death of collin's hero is self-inflicted according to wagner this overture is a tone picture of the scene the most decisive of all between coriolanus his mother and wife 
in the enemy's camp before the gates of his native city. But the most pointed and illuminating guide to the contents of Beethoven's music will be found in these brief sentences written in elucidation of the overture by Mr. H. E. Crabio. Quote, One may forget both plays, Collins and Shakespeare's, while listening to Beethoven, and go back to Plutarch and the Greek tragic poets for the elements of the music. They are the monumental ones illustrated in the Prometheus of Aeschylus and the Oedipus of Sophocles. Like Prometheus, Oedipus, Ajax, and Pentheus, Coriolanus becomes insolent in his pride and goes to destruction. He is noble, kind, good, courageous, but vainglorious in his pride of ancestry, position, and achievement, and he falls. The elements in his character to which Beethoven has given marvelously eloquent proclamation are his pride, which leads him to refuse to truckle to the plebeian tribunes, his rage which has stomach for the destruction of Rome, and his tenderness which makes him yield to the tears of mother and wife, and brings death to him. The moods are two, the first published in the stupendous unisono sea of the introduction, and the angry principal subject, the second in the gentle and melodious second theme. The overture dies with mutterings in the depths, with pride unbroken. Closed quote. Symphony Number no. 6, Pastoral, Opus 68. The Pastoral Symphony, composed in the summer of 1808, is the first example of symphonic program music by a great master. Its illustrative purpose is frankly proclaimed by the descriptive titles which head the separate movements as follows. 1. Awakening of Joyful Impressions on Arriving in the Country. Allegro Manon Tropo. 2. Seen by the Brook. Andante Molto Moto. 3. Merry Gathering of Country Folk. Allegro. 4. Thunderstorm. Allegro. 5. Shepherd's Song. Glad and Thankful Feelings After the Storm. Allegretto. Beethoven, in the music of this symphony, is avowedly a musical realist. In the Scene by the Brook, he delineates the rippling of the water by weaving and shimmering of the strings, the songs of birds by imitative figures in the woodwind, the nightingale, flute, the quail, oboe, the cuckoo, two clarinets, which he is at pains to label in the score, and in the thunderstorm section, wind, falling rain, flashes of lightning, the growling of thunder, are suggested by means of easily recognized musical symbols. Yet that the composer was here a somewhat timorous programmist is indicated by the note which he wrote in the sketchbook containing ideas for the music of the pastoral. Quote, the hearer is left to find out the situations for himself. Close quote a recommendation which he afterwards thought better of, and by the deprecatory afterthought with which he accompanied the description of the symphony on the program of the concert at which it was first performed, 
in Vienna, December 22nd, 1808. Quote, More expression of feeling than painting. Depiction. Close quote. And this, despite the verisimilitude of the storm and the phonographic warblings of the instrumental birds in a tone poem whose naive realism is as deliberate as it is beyond dispute. Footnote. It is due to the casual reader to remark here that this somewhat Pecksniffian observation of Beethoven's has given rise to more confused and dogmatic philosophizing about the functions and limitations of musical art than time or mere reason can ever hope to overcome. If the bird songs, the thunderstorm, and the rest of the naturalistic music-making in the pastoral are not to be classed as musical depiction, malerai is Beethoven's word, but are really only expression of feeling, ausdruck der Empfundung, then must one resign oneself to the conclusion that there is actually no such thing as program music at all. End footnote. Overture to Egmont, Opus 84 Beethoven's incidental music to Goethe's Egmont was commissioned by Hartel, manager of the court theatres at Vienna. The overture, composed in 1810, was performed for the first time, together with the rest of the incidental music, at a performance of the play at the Hofburg Theatre on May 24, 1810. The overture was published in the following year. The dramatic significance of this music has been pithily summarized by Mr. Philip Hale. Quote, the overture is at first a mighty lamentation. There are the voices of an aroused and angry people, and there is, at the last, tumultuous rejoicing. Close quote. The more elaborate interpretation of Dr. Leopold Damrosch is as acceptable as any. Quote, the overture begins with an outcry, a cry for help, uttered by an entire nation. Then follow heavy, determined chords which seem to press down the very life of the people, who seem, helplessly, to yield to their fate. Only the all-pervading woe remains impressively sounded forth, first by the oboe. From every side the wail is repeated bringing before us, as in a picture, the hands of the nation uplifted in prayer to heaven, until it is lost in the unison of the first outcry, fortissimo. Only one ray of hope remains, Egmont. But even his light-hearted nature seems imbued with anxiety for his oppressed country. His motive is as if bound in chains by the simultaneous repetition of somber chords. In deep melancholy, the violins repeat the motive, seeming to languish more and more. But with sudden impulse it revives. Egmont shakes off the gloom which surrounds him. His pulse beats quickly and gladly. On every side his fellow citizens cry to him for aid. They flock together, and in excited bands surround him, their only champion and deliverer. As if to arouse Egmont still more to action, the somber chords of the introduction are heard suddenly but now in agitated measures, shorter, more commanding, and more incisive. Egmont heeds not these warnings. His short, 
lightly given answers indicate that the decisive moment has not yet arrived for him. Three times the stringed instruments thunder forth the word of command. Then, as if Egmont with a prophetic eye saw the future before him, he seems to press forward with a mighty rush to meet the oppressors. The host of followers, faithful to his call, rally to a spirited attack, and in fierce contest, the victory seems to be won. Quote, but this is only a dream. True to his nature, he is playing with his doom. Two vehemently interrupting chords try to arouse Egmont from his reveries, but still he dreams on and hears them not. Beethoven then leads to the dramatic catastrophe and to the musical climax. Harshly and powerfully the authoritative chords resound again. This time they arouse Egmont from his reveries, and for the first time he seems to have a presentiment of the actual danger. But his vision of before has not yet left him. It still hovers about him, and even the repeated alarm will not shake it from his mind. For the third time the terrible chords resound with trumpets and kettle-drums thundering out from the orchestra fortissimo. At last the illusion is over. A cry of anguish escapes him. His fate is sealed. Death is his doom. In mute horror the people surround the scaffold of their idol, and their heartfelt prayers ascend to heaven. But now their wrath, gaining double force from the martyrdom of their hero, and from the hope that heaven will listen to their prayers, bursts forth. At first a distant murmur is heard. But in wild turmoil the storm of insurrection swells onward, and soon triumphal sounds of victory announce the tyrant's downfall. We hear the chains resolutely rent asunder, and louder rises the cry of victory. Closed quote. End of section three.